Welcome to Heavy Strategy. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about SaaS as a business. Probably from the customer's point of view, what's it like to buy SaaS and why are the arguments for and against the SaaS business model and whether it's good for customers or whether it's good for the vendors that are selling it to you. Because usually we talk about a win-win, but there's definitely aspects of a SaaS model where it might actually be a win-lose or a lose-lose. And those are the type of things that we want to dive into. We're not here to change your mind. We're not here to tell you how it does it. We're just here to talk about it and see how he does it. And of course, I'm joined by Jonah today. Let's just dive straight in. I think with SaaS, it's good and bad. And when I sometimes sit there and look at software as a service, and I think, you know, it is so much easier to just get email from Microsoft Azure than it is to run the email server itself. And part of me wants to say, why was it so hard for them to make an email server that would actually work properly? But another part of me says, email is sort of gotten to the point of complexity at the server side where it really needs to be managed by somebody who knows what they're doing. Or the other side of it could be is, was it in Microsoft's interest to make the worst possible product ever because it just couldn't be bothered? I don't know. And so turning it into a SaaS gives them the ability to triple their revenue for half the effort. Does it, does, where do you stand on that? Well, first of all, I agree that Microsoft really seems to be incented to make the worst software ever in a lot of different dimensions. One of the recommendations I always make to clients is uh, you've got to remember whenever you're dealing with Microsoft that they do two things excruciatingly badly. One is security and the other one is networking. And mm. so they've been had a very steep learning curve moving to the cloud. Uh, you know, the past couple of weeks, I've been posting quite a bit about Microsoft Azure and Cosmos weaknesses. Um, and, you know, MITRE ATT&CK, the MITRE ATT&CK framework has come out with mapping Microsoft Azure controls. Now that's Azure, so that's IaaS and PaaS, not SaaS, but mm. still it's just an indication mapping the, the Microsoft controls to the, to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And it turns out that the vast majority of the controls are minimal to partial as opposed to significant. And they're very easy three-tier grading. Point being that there are an awful lot of weaknesses in Azure and I would not be, I would not expect anything different in any SaaS offering from Microsoft. It's, it's interesting in the sense that that vulnerability that be where they left mm. uh, the Jupyter notebooks were able to get access through. Now that's kind of, in one ways, it's easy to say, uh, it's easy for developers to make a mistake. But the point here is that in a SaaS model, especially when you're operating in a public cloud model, this is a service that tens of thousands of companies are using, tens of thousands of apps are using, and therefore they should take security 10,000 times more seriously, and yet they don't. The SaaS model seems to encourage bad behavior from vendors because they sort of say like, well, I don't have to make it secure because I can fix it later. Yeah, I, I, I don't... I don't necessarily know what's going through Microsoft's mind, but coming back to the whole question of SaaS, what's interesting is it's not really a debate. Uh, we stopped tracking the use of SaaS, you know, asking companies whether they were using SaaS back about five years ago when we hit the 97% mark. Uh, mm. And, you know, kind of we looked at each other and said, it is no longer an emerging technology. It has emerged. If well, it's not a technology. Everybody... SaaS isn't a technology. Yeah. It's a business model. That, that's, right? that's true. But nonetheless, we've uh, done with all the arguments. It's something that we track as a technology. It's actually yeah. a delivery model. Using it 
some when, yeah. somehow, even if it's just exactly. Spotify, right? You could argue it, that Spotify it, is SaaS. Well, I would I would argue that most corporations don't use Spotify as a corporate entity. But uh, mm-hmm. a more a more serious example is Workday uh, or Salesforce. These are these are mm-hmm. SaaS apps that you know almost every company uses in some way, shape, or form. What's interesting that most companies see SaaS as an unmitigated good from all sorts of directions. One is price. They think they're getting a good deal. One is what you highlighted, which is they don't have to manage the software. So there's, you know, hidden labor costs that go away. Hmm. There's also a false, but very pernicious assumption that because it's SaaS, it's somehow more secure than their own organizations could make it. So everybody thinks, Hey, this is great. It's, it's, it lowers my cost. It lowers my operational cost. Uh, It keeps the users up to date with the most, you know, recent versions because it's the provider's responsibility to do the updates. What's not to love? And I think your point is perhaps there is a little bit of a debate here. Perhaps there are a few downsides to SaaS or maybe more than a few. The other part about it is SaaS models are great, especially in the U.S. legal jurisdiction, because your recourse in the court of law is usually limited to the amount of money that you spent on a product. And if you're spending, I don't know, $100,000 a month, it's very difficult to claim $20 $20 million worth of damages because the, the asymmetry, right? But if you spent $20 million buying an ERP package and it failed to deliver, you can definitely litigate that in a court of law a lot easier. So one angle for SaaS is from the vendor side is it makes it much more difficult for customers to get a refund. I would agree. And I think you've highlighted and hopefully we'll get to a couple negatives that people haven't thought of. From my perspective, the big negative to SaaS is that your data now lives off-site, and there are two problems with that. One is the obvious security risks for that, and the second one is that most companies do not have a well-thought-out end-of-life plan for anything, let alone SaaS apps. And when you ask somebody, oh, how are you getting all that data back when you decide to move to a different provider, the answer is usually a blank stare. That's a huge problem. First of all, you lose your leverage with the vendor because you're saying, I don't know how to leave you, so we're going to be married forever and ever, Mm. which is a terrible negotiating stance, um, as I'm sure you'll point out. But also, there's the issue of what happens if the vendor that you're relying on, which I've seen happen again and again, is a midsize or small company that gets bought by one of the big players and slowly decommissioned. You are absolutely stuck then. You may get your data back. But it's in a format that's going to take you years to repurpose in the format that's usable. And by the way, you don't actually know what happened to the data, the actual original data, because you're getting obviously a copy. You're not getting the actual data back. They may not have disposed of your data in anything like a secure fashion. Yeah. So when you look at somebody like Salesforce, they've got all of your sales data. So far, Salesforce has chosen not to sell that data to somebody else, but it certainly uses your data for its own purposes. Well, I would say so far as we know, I actually haven't asked Salesforce Mm -hmm. that. One of the things that they are doing, for example, is they're giving you the ability to rank your company against other companies in the Salesforce ecosystem. You can ask for queries and say, how does my company rate against other companies in my market space? How's my sales team doing? They'll come back with a report to tell you whether you're in the top 10%, the top 30%, the top or the bottom, right? And that is actually using your data because you then become ranked according to some Salesforce metric. And that then drives. Now, modern executives, if you want to call them modern, are very data-driven. If you give them a piece of data, they get onto that because they feel that's something they can't ignore. But what they forget is just because the fact is that Salesforce has given you a ranking of minus, you know, you're in the bottom 20% of companies, 
how did you get to the data? What's the algorithm behind that? How, what are the metrics that they use to justify that decision? And they won't tell you a lot of the time. So two things there. One is they're using your data for their own purposes, often for your own benefit, but obviously for their own, right? Because they'll then feed that into their sales teams and their sales team will come down and say, you should be buying the extra module. And that's important to understand because as a customer, you need to be smart about buying. You need to have be purchasing aware. In the old days, you, you only needed to, to buff up your purchasing skills once. And that's when you bought this product. And then every couple of years when the maintenance contract renewed, you needed to get your purchasing out. Now the subscription means that you're actually in a purchasing cycle constantly. You know, and, and Greg, I'd like to push on that too, because I think you, you raised a, an, an issue earlier when we were just chatting that the SaaS vendor having your data, on the one hand, it's good because they can do things like these reports, which sounds like, a, you know, great, that's a win-win. But on the other hand, you pointed out previously that one of the things that having your data then delivers is information asymmetry in that ongoing purchasing process and that that Im information asymmetry is bad for the enterprise. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? <laughs> in the past, we used to have a purchasing department that would actually be somebody we would use and technology would turn to them at key points in the buying cycle and leverage their capabilities and their expertise. Now, that's a bit of a mixed bag because purchasing was often very poorly informed about technology and didn't understand the nuances and they would often give you general advice and then take over and actually stuff the deal up, right? So then we've got stories that cut both ways, stories where purchasing was able to negotiate a better price and cut the deal, you know, get 20% off the top by leveraging their something, something, something. But I've also seen them go and buy the wrong thing and say, but I just... I saw the opportunity to buy the same thing, but from a different company. So I bought it. Like all things, there's a good and a bad. There's never one thing that's right. I mean, I've had uh, purchasing departments come in and cut 20% off the deal price because the person was a great negotiator. I've also had the purchasing department buy it from another reseller. And I'm saying, but hang on, we were going to buy it from this reseller because they were going to give us this. And they go like, but we don't care. We've already bought it and we can't undo this now. And all of a sudden we're stuck with something missing, like they replaced it with inferior product or the classic one was Dell in the old days. I don't think they do it so much these days. Dell would sell you a server and it would turn up on site, but it'd be missing a hard drive or a controller or a video card. And then they'd go, oh yeah, but that's extra. And you go like, well, why didn't you put that on the order? And they say, well, it's up to you. You didn't ask. Customer, yeah. right? You didn't ask. And well, um, that was a really common way for Dell to jack the price of their products up was to say, there was these things in there that you didn't, and you give it to purchasing and purchasing would just take all the extras out. And that was a classic yeah. mistake that used to happen to me a lot. Well, but if one assumes that purchasing is relatively well-informed from a technology perspective, and I take your point that some departments are, some departments aren't, I still think, and I'm going to hammer on this slightly because I want to make sure people understand what you're saying. You know, you had made the point that all things being equal, uh, if you've got a negotiation happening, the benefit accrues to the side that has the most knowledge. And one mm -hmm. of the things that changes with the SaaS or subscription model is that the vendor now is coming in with more knowledge than you have over your own user behavior and environments. And that's one of the areas where I have to agree with you, because when we do when we work with clients to negotiate, for example, telecommunications contracts, I always counsel them to think through their their networking strategy first figure out what they're going to be using more of and less of three years out, and then don't share that with the carrier. In environments where the carrier actually can see that, it's child's play to simply come in and say, oh, we'll give you 
real a really good deal on the services you're using today and take mm. it out of your hide for the services that you're going to be using five years from now. In fact, I'm yeah. dealing with a client that is suffering from that right now. So yeah. information the, the, asymmetry is a real issue. And that is a form of lock-in. Obviously, we right. just generally, we generally, we, lock, we generalize that as lock-in. I've got an IBM mainframe and it's very difficult to me to move off the IBM mainframe. In using it, I'm, that's not to say that mainframes are valueless. What I'm saying is, if you want to have choices, you the decision to use an you know an IBM style mainframe or a, a mini computer, whether it's a AWS mainframe or an Azure mainframe, it's all the same. It's all aspects of the same thing. And once you get into AWS, you're effectively choosing the lock-in. Now that's okay, as long as you're consciously choosing that lock-in or that. Well, and I think lock-in is a separate issue, which is also important. You know, information asymmetry is an issue. Lock-in is an issue because it's very, very difficult to migrate away from SaaS. Mm. Uh, and the third issue I would raise is is the cybersecurity issue because, number one, at the very least, you're sharing all your data with the vendor. Number two, we don't know who the vendor is sharing that data with. Yeah. And unless you've written a contract that, first of all, requires them to reveal it, second of all, enforces that by making sure that it's not possible for them to share your data, and third of all, puts heavy penalties on them for even inadvertently sharing but, your data. So here's the kicker in that, and that, that is that they have legal clauses in their contracts to say, we have the right to to do anything with your data. And the reasoning that I've had been told why is because they have to be able to back it up. And so they have to be able to take a copy of the data. And so if the SaaS is hosted in Google Cloud, they might want to take a backup and transfer it to Azure. Or And in the process of doing the backup, the data inherently becomes transformed, modified, adapted, transferred to any third party. It can cross any network. Like the network between Google and Azure can be 15 parties long. Like And so they have to write these legal clauses that basically give them full rights to own your data in perpetuity because they have to maintain the backup in perpetuity to some extent, right? So legally, you actually have zero rights to your data when it's in SaaS because you sign it away. Because well, in theory, it has to be kept for backups or for resilience or for recovery. or something. A large enterprise has an enormous leverage in changing any clause and every clause, even dealing with someone like Microsoft, because uh, a company that's of the size of Microsoft can go in and say, no, I'm not signing that. And here's hmm. how you're going to restructure it and limit it very narrowly. And here's how you're going to enforce it. That said... That's, you know, I don't know what, 5%, 2% of all companies, your ordinary mid-sized business has no such recourse and has to take what's offered. So there's that. Yeah. But the other point I'd, I'd raise is that kind of negotiation is exactly the kind of thing that I don't think procurement has caught up with yet. And what I mean is, you know, about five years ago when, quote unquote, the cloud, you know, cloud was upon us, I remember advising all of my large clients, guys, you need to give your procurement teams a big training session in how to negotiate cloud ag agreements because it's going to be an increasing percentage of your infrastructure and procurement they can be very very good but they don't know what to look for unless you tell them and what we found is almost no companies had cloud specific cloud specific expertise within their technology the technology specific expertise mm, within mm. within procurement i think that's changing i haven't back, gone back and asked about it recently but it has, isn't changing nearly fast enough. Let's move on to the next topic. One of the things yeah. that SaaS actually does let vendors get away with is price rises. Yes. So yep. if you've been tracking the financial statements of IT vendors, they're telling shareholders that SaaS actually gets them to increase 
total revenue by 30 to 60%. So what they're effectively doing is by switching from the one-time purchase to the subscription license model or the subscription SaaS hosting, is they're able to extract 30 to 60% more top-line revenue from the client for the same product that they were selling before. Now, they, that has lots of impacts here, but uh, shareholders love it, uh, love the SaaS model, and is a substantial driver for the adoption of the shareholder of the SaaS model, is that shareholders want to see companies be able to stabilize revenues, to have predictable revenues. And if you can say, I've got 500,000 customers paying me $20 a month, this is my revenue. And if we lose... We have an attrition rate of minus 4%, but we have a new sign-up rate at 8%, then you can know exactly what the forward-looking money looks like. It's very easy to value companies, and it's very easy to even evaluate things like goodwill, you know, business inherent business value and stuff like that, because it all just comes down to number of subscribers. It'll, you can almost just like have a simple yes, formula. Yes, I'm actually very familiar with it, having worked at my own and other analyst firms. And there's a reason analysts deliver services on a subscription model. Hmm. Uh, and the reason is exactly what you said. So yes, it's extremely good for the vendor. And the point that you made that offering the same thing, but they're actually making you know 30% at least more is a key point. Hmm. Um, there's also the fact that we talked about earlier that it's extremely difficult to get off a SaaS relationship, unlike, say, an analyst right. relationship. Yeah. It's very difficult to get off for all the reasons we talked about. Uh, and then there's something else that you raised that I would love for you to go into a little bit, which is this whole issue of, well, where, what happens to the vendor's motivation to innovate in a SaaS? Yeah, and this is something that I've really been pondering. If you're going to get, like, imagine, um, and this sort of comes down to the societal argument of basic income. If I gave everybody a thousand dollars a month, you know, ten thousand, you know, a guaranteed income, would they continue to do meaningful things in their life? Would they go out and continue to find work, or would artists continue to art? Would musicians feel better because now that they're financially secure, would they be able to create more music and have more opportunities to grab to find a market for their product because they can now have a baseline, right? Different countries and different societies have different views. But fundamentally, what we've done to companies is given them basic income. They get money regardless of whether the product works or not, right? And when I say it doesn't work, I mean, it doesn't mean, like, look at Microsoft Word. You could claim right. that pretty substantially for the last, you know, 30 years, Microsoft Office has been more of a problem than a feature, for most organizations, we've got some basic features. I would, I would not you know. disagree. In fact, we had, a, we had a lovely conversation late last night yeah. uh, about the shortcomings of Word and PowerPoint. Uh, you know, I mean, it's functionally slightly better than it was 15 years ago, but yeah. Uh, you know, but paying $100 a year per person for a Microsoft Office license actually gives Microsoft very limited incentive to improve the product. They don't need to make it more secure because customers will pay someone else to make it secure. Antivirus software, malware detection, threat detection. There's a whole industry fundamentally dedicated to making Microsoft Office safe. To saving, my, to yeah. saving Microsoft from itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to come back to something you raised because that leap that you made to mm. universal income may seem a little out there to someone who's listening. Uh, but I agree wholeheartedly because the issue with capitalism, and I can you know, stand here as a staunch capitalist, the issue with capitalism is it always, in all cases, wherever possible, de devolves to monopoly. 
Hmm. And SAS is a manufactured prefab monopoly. Yeah, rent seeking, right? So uh, it absolutely is. Yeah, there's a number of customers in companies in technology like Computer Associates who Broadcom, what Broadcom did to the uh, fiber channel business from Brocade, right? They acquired it, and they know very well that for the next 25 years they're going to extract billions of dollars worth of cash out of the fiber channel for trivial amounts of research, and effectively they've turned fiber channel into a SAS model. Um, in all but name, it's the products are still sold and purchased, but they're not going to, they're not introducing fundamental science that are accelerating the developments of fiber channel, or there's not new standards of fiber channel coming down for it infrastructure architects. They are effectively taking the same technology that was developed over the last 20 years, innovation ceased five years ago, and they just keep selling that technology and people keep paying premium prices for what is fundamentally a dead technology. That is SaaS in a way, right? Uh, but what I'm what I'm more thinking of is things like Microsoft Office or Exchange or Salesforce or Dropbox or right? or even some of the cybersecurity offerings. You know, one thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies is the cybersecurity companies, large and small, have launched concerted marketing efforts to their customers to argue that all your all your cybersecurity should belong to us and we will deliver it in a SaaS mm. model. And I've got, I've got clients going, uh, you know, I've just been talking to name your favorite, you know, cybersecurity vendor here. And they've explained to me why it is so, 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 so much better to use the cloud versions of everything they've got, which is arguably SaaS. I mean, it's, you know, if you're looking at, for example, identity as a service, that's a SaaS service. It's a very specialized one. Exactly what you're saying is the reason I think that's a terrible idea because mm. once they get you locked in, they don't have to innovate all you're really getting is the box checked for having a major vendor doing your cybersecurity, which is a separate discussion because you would make the point that that's all you need to do yeah. the problem the problem is you're paying enormous amounts of money which is not a good thing yeah so and, and, yeah yeah there's a real tension there yeah and it, and it goes hand in hand with another one one of the things that we're seeing with SaaS services is that they start to add features that nobody wants the one that's at the top of my mind is dropbox and for a lot of people I use Dropbox just to share files. And all right. I want to do is put, and it was a marvelous product for just having a folder, dropping a file, it syncs it, and then you can share it with other people in a range of different ways. And it wants to increase its pricing. It wants to grow the company. And so what they've been doing is adding features to the product. They've got some sort of office suite thing. They want to capture your photos and drop them into the Dropbox folder automatically and there's all these features I just don't want and I cannot turn off. Now the same thing happens in Salesforce or SAP or your ERP. You get this pointless feature creep where they justifying they are still spending the same amount of money on R&D or product development but not delivering features that anybody wants. They're delivering features just to deliver features. That's a flip side of this, right? Well, exactly. And also customization becomes increasingly difficult and expensive. And in fact, uh, I'm working right now with a client where, you know, we walked into the to the project without go, going into details. We said, oh, there's a commercial off the shelf product you should cons- consider for this function. And it's a SaaS commercial off the shelf product. Uh, we said, you definitely need to assess it. And they kind of said, you know, yes, we'll humor you, Nimerdes, and and assess the product. But quite frankly, we think we might want to do our own development. And we said, that could be, let's look at the buy versus build chart. And what we realized is for what they need, they're actually better off building their own Mm. product. If they wish to deliver it on a SaaS model internally, 
they can. Yeah. Uh, they have the infrastructure to do that. But what I'm finding very interesting is it's boom times for large enterprise application developers. And I think precisely for this reason, because they've taken a long, hard look at the commercial environment. They realized that innovation is going to start to slow down. And if they truly view technology as a competitive differentiator and a strategic advantage, they're going to have to do it themselves because they can't. I was talking to a company the other day and they described themselves as a software development company that does insurance. Yep. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And and in fact, we have a we have a model that we use when we assess a company or benchmark a company. And it really comes down to how they, you know, their their attitude towards technology. And at one end of the yeah. spectrum is conservative. They view that they view technology as nothing but a cost center. At the far end of the spectrum is leading edge, bleeding edge, where they see it as a you know strategic advantage, competitive advantage. And quite frankly, anyone who's at the aggressive to leading edge end of the spectrum actually recognizes that they are a technology company that happens to be focused on a specific yeah, business a, use case. Yeah, there's something that their software does. That's, right, Although exactly. that may be their core activity, it's right. being a technology company. And that's the idea of digital transformation is that it's technology first core business. Exactly, which yes. actually we may need to talk about on, a, on another heavy mm. strategy because there are some very interesting issues and dynamics at play with the whole notion of digital transformation. But back to SaaS. Yeah, so my next thing that I wanted to, we didn't touch on, we should have talked about it earlier, was SaaS is also a good tool for diligence avoidance because I can start off. How do you, just, how do you mean that? Well, so normally that? when you implement a technology, you go out and do a due diligence as to whether you want this tool or whether you right. want to buy this thing. And there's a, you, you, need, you go out and you do various things. In accounting, it's called assumptions of prudence, right? Yeah. Where you calculate your ROI. And one of the interesting things about SAS in particular is, um, let me just call this up because I'll get the exact words, right? Assumptions okay. of prudence is an accounting term, and it's a convention of conservatism, also known as the doctrine of prudence, is a policy of anticipating possible future losses, but not future gains. In accounting, it states, this comes from Wikipedia, in accounting, it states that when choosing between two solutions, the one that will be least likely to overstate assets and income should be selected. Essentially, expected losses are losses, but expected gains are not gains. So one of the arguments that you get for SAS is this is going to save us money because we are only going to pay for what we use. But that is not actually a gain because what you can assume is that if we've laid out a lot of negatives here and in accounting term, we've laid out a lot of losses and there's not actually that many positives to assess if you start to sort of lay them all out, except that when you talk to an accountant trying to talk about intangibles like avoiding cost control, like one aspect of this accounting thing is if your company goes into distress, like let's say you have a financial act or there's some sort of event which causes your a financial shock to the cash flow of the business, you are unable to control the cost of your business. So if you're paying exactly five hundred dollars a head for your IT in a SaaS or a thousand, you can't or, you can't just yank that away without being in a position not being able to conduct business. That's right. And yet, for the last thirty years of IT that I've worked in, there are software applications or technologies inside of companies that are thirty years old that were paid off twenty years ago. And they've been sweating that asset ever since. And I've worked for companies in distress and they just stopped buying new software and all that cash just was fine. So I think one of the things that you're going to see is that companies that run heavily into SaaS are going to look like startups. And that is they're going to, they're either going to fly or die. They're going to crash 
hard and they're going to crash out fast. The idea that you can turn a company around is probably going to be rarer and rarer in an era of SaaS. I think it's an interesting point, and I would also argue a side point, which may be of, you know, most people would think, oh, that's completely insane, but it's actually not. Can your company continue to function if the internet goes down? Mm. And as I said, most people would just look at me and say, that's an insane assumption. If the internet goes down, it's like having a global power outage or a meteor hitting the earth. We can't plan for that. Yeah. Well, no, actually, uh, not to go too far off on a tangent, but in today's geopolitical environment, that's actually something that could very easily happen. And obviously, if you're offering your own your own software as a service across the internet, you would be hit by that. But if you have software that's locally resident, you could continue to function. And if you're in a business that needs to keep functioning in, an, in the scenario in which there may be a regional or global catastrophe, uh, you're kind of out of luck if you are too heavily reliant on SaaS. And I know that sounds like a way out there assumption, but mm. assuming that internet is as widely available and, you know, is universal and will never go away is a false assumption. Yeah. I, that's I, I think closely that's... related to what I call yep. blame shifting. Yep. Now, one of the most successful things about SaaS and something that I love about it is it's not my fault. It's right. the SaaS vendor, Right. So look yeah. at the solar winds problem, right? Everybody got owned, but yeah. every single CSIO or IT was able to was say, able... "Yeah, yeah, it's not my fault." And, not my and fault. look at all these other people yeah. who are also in the same boat. So I did the best I could. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now there's it's... a lot of that's honestly got a lot of value for me as an employee. I don't actually care about the company because whether this company survives, not my problem. I'll just go to the next one, which is interesting when you think about it, because right now there are more jobs than there are IT workers. And increasingly in technology, people are asking for better conditions and better managers, more importantly. If your manager is no good, you can just walk out the door and shift to another one, right? Work remote. If you've got poor organization or poor leadership, why put up with them? Move on. And blame shifting is awesome, right? Uh, you know, we bought this from Microsoft Azure and the service, like, you know, yeah, all of our data got stolen, but it's not my fault. Right. Honestly, powerful argument. I'm, I'm there for that, really. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, I can see your argument and I think SaaS actually makes a lot of sense in a handful of scenarios. Uh, one is if you're working in a, an environment where essentially everything is defensive, um, you know, for, you, you know, the company is really giving up on innovation, not hmm. really, you know, just looking to, you know, just looking to business as usual. Uh, another one is if you're trying to launch a startup in record time, you want to go all SaaS as quickly as possible because that's much, much faster than buying and configuring infrastructure yourself and to mm. run the, the applications on. But I think the portfolio of what is in SaaS and what isn't needs to be revisited on a much more regular basis than companies are currently doing today. And, you know, you talked about procurement and accounting principles. The way I look at it is... One of the things that has to change is we've got to stop having a, a bright line between procurement and HR. And what I mean by that is today, if it's a thing you go to procurement to get, if it's a person you go to HR to get is kind of the breakdown. Mm. That's the wrong way to approach things because you've already decided what the form factor of your solution is. You should be more open-minded and say, here, here is the function I need to accomplish. There's a broad spectrum I could look at. At one end is SaaS. In the middle might be professional services, and at the far end is a dedicated employee. What are the parameters that I need to use to make those decisions? Everything we've been talking about here, risk, 
cost, you know, data protection, um, CYA in the, in, in the incident of failure, you have a lot less blame shifting if it's an employee you hired, et cetera, et cetera. You should have a framework that says for any business function, I run it through this framework and decide where on the spectrum it hits. And it mm. may hit in different places on that spectrum as your company grows and evolves. Yeah. I haven't yet seen companies put that in place, but a lot of them are interested in most it. Most companies aren't that structured. Most people aren't trained that way. Like most executives or management don't have that sort of. True. Very, very few people have been to Harvard Business School or any business uh, well, school. Well, hey, 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 hey. I would argue that going to Harvard Business School would absolutely preclude thinking like that. Yeah, uh, no, I've, I, seen, I, I've I, seen more mistakes from Harvard Business School and Harvard Law than, you know, that's, I, I, that's a negative indicator for me. I would not. Yeah, I was using somebody. a brand. I was using a yeah. brand lever to make yeah. a metaphor, metaphoric point, perhaps. Yeah. But I guess my general assumption is, yeah, you're quite right. You know, if if everything worked the way it was supposed to, everything would be secure. But the reality is that very little works the way it's supposed to and the people in the pipe. I think. And I'll go back to one of my favorite uh, topics is that there's just not enough headcount being assigned to these tasks for it yes. in the main, right? Yes. Um, to be able to do the things like the idea that I will put together a spreadsheet and calculate an ROI. I'm an infrastructure architect. 90% of my job is technology, not putting together spreadsheets and calculating pointless SAS numbers and ROIs. That's that's the job of somebody else, right? I, I and, and this is one of the interesting parts about SAS is it completely bypasses the whole diligence, coming back to diligence well, avoidance, I, right? I would argue it doesn't, but I, I think your previous point is actually well taken because I have seen exactly the scenario of extremely good managers and infrastructure ar architects making god-awful ROI and TCO calculations. Um, I have one client where when it was finally revealed to me what the business case for moving to cloud was, you know, my reaction was pretty much, but you do understand this is completely bogus. <laughs> and then they told me who did it and it blew my mind because the person who did it is somebody that I respect enormously, who has a very good business sense. Yeah. And even he wasn't able to do no, the job I... that they needed. And so yeah. I agree with you. You need more, more high caliber I... talent doing this stuff and or supporting stuff yeah right so yeah. the original idea is that project managers would do rois right or uh yeah actually no. it was project secretaries back in the day that did the roi and the project manager right. took the data and made a decision right and that was how project management was supposed to be structured is that there would be secretaries project researchers there'd be project purchasing officers and then at the top there was a project manager who actually ran a staff now the project management industry has gotten very full of itself, of course, and what used to be a secretary or a whatever is now called a project manager. But, you know, it is an interesting one. Well, I hope that uh, we've thrown some ideas at you today just to give you get you thinking. There's definitely value in SaaS. There's definitely feature. But I generally have the view that there's a lot more value in SaaS for the vendor, for the product maker. They make more money. They get more control of the customer. They get... Um, get to choose what the product looks like without recourse to the customer. They don't have to keep going back to the customer for approval. And what I mean by that is they don't have to go to the customer and try and sell it to them. And then the customer says, that's not what I want. I don't want to buy it. And if we look at what's happening with SaaS, like Dropbox releasing new features or Microsoft adding features to Azure or AWS adding new products, you can't, you can't sit there and say, I don't want those. Or you can't say you can't sell them to me because they're just going to do them. Right. And at the same time, I also recognize the seductive, the seductive nature of it's not my fault if something goes wrong and I can reduce this to a number per head. 
So that person over there is costing me $5,000 a month. By the time I go all up with my Azure and my Salesforce and my internet and blah, 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 that is a very seductive thing. But there's negatives associated with that, and perhaps we've managed to uncover some of them. Yeah, and I think I would I would sum it up. I know, Greg, you hate summing things up and leaving people with takeaways because you guys who are listening can figure this out on your own. Mm. But I can't resist saying, you know, I think the big takeaway is don't assume SaaS is an unmitigated good. If you go back and look at your SaaS contracts with fresh eyes after listening to this podcast, I think Greg and I will be real happy that we've done our jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're not here to make you help to give you, you know, the top three things that will change your SaaS experience. That's not how it works at all, right? There's so much of that rubbish around. It's it's not. It's 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 a very subtle and differentiated thing. And I don't think anybody can tell you. It's all in the context of your managers and their viewpoints, the business that you're in to some extent, even though everybody uses the same technology to solve the same problems, there is nuance in every one of those. And that is why we are Heavy Strategy. I'm Greg Farrow from the Packet Pushers. Jonah Till Johnson is the CEO of Namurdi's Research. We will be back again in a week or two with another episode. And I think the next one might be on subscriptions, but I'm not sure we want to repeat this. It's my I'd like to do digital it. transformation, to be honest. Yeah, one of I my think, favorite th- topics to right, exactly. make fun there's of. A, there's right. quite a lot to hammer on on that. So stay tuned, digital transformation.